the French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, episode 44, The National Convention. In this episode, we're going to be exploring one of the most famous and influential legislatures ever to exist. We'll cover its elections, its deputies, and finally, the factions which will come to dominate not only the body itself, but the course of European history. Along the way, we will get into the grey, touching on a few common perceptions which might not be so clear-cut once you get into the details. The episode extra for this episode is something special. On the last day of the Legislative Assembly, the body legalised divorce. The reform was groundbreaking, and it took almost 180 years before the United States or the United Kingdom implemented anything like the policy of the revolutionaries. So in this sizable episode extra, it's about 23 minutes long, we're going to be discussing the factors encouraging the legislation of divorce, the initial attempts to do so, the eventual law itself, and the very real impact all of this had on French society. We'll also cover further reforms under Napoleon, the restored monarchy, and finally the Third French Republic. If you're even slightly curious as to the history of divorce in the modern Western world, you need to check it out. Now, as always, Grey History is only possible because of the support of the community. Thank you so much to everyone who has been leaving written reviews, sharing the show on social media, telling their friends and family about the show, and just helping out the podcast in any way. Of particular note are those who support the show on Patreon. A warm welcome to the new patrons of the podcast. This includes the virtuous citizens Costa, Jose, Steve, Jonas, Richard, Stephen and Dom, as well as the new True Revolutionary Avenue. Furthermore, a special call out to the extra generous champions of the people, Jeffrey, Cynthia, George, Brady, Tim, Mark, Charles, William and Laura. Finally, an extraordinary thank you to the heroes of the revolution, Brian, Eric, and Christy. As always, if you're keen for more grey history, if you find it educational or entertaining, then I need your help to ensure that it will be here for you in another couple of weeks. Please support the show today and join the community on Patreon. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 44, The National Convention. On the 21st of September, 1792, Abbé Grégoire rose to address the new National Convention. Having been a member of the original National Constituent Assembly of 1789 to 1791, Grégoire was no stranger to addressing his peers on matters of great importance. But as he rose to speak, the matter which he wished to address was not merely important, but critical to the survival of the revolutionary project. Grégoire sought to convince his fellow deputies that the monarchy should be abolished. Declaring that kings fulfil the moral role which monsters serve in the physical world, the representative of Blois denounced royal courts as the breeding ground of crime, the home of corrupt practices, and the natural layer of tyrants. To Grégoire, it was clear that the history of kings was the story of the martyrdom of nations. If the French nation wished to survive, the French monarchy could not. In a move that would come to define the modern world, 
the convention agreed. Thus, on the 21st of September 1792, the new legislative body decreed the abolition of royalty. France had become a republic in all but name. The abolition of royalty was one of the many historic decisions of the National Convention, one of the most famous and infamous legislatures ever to exist. Both the policies and politics of the new convention continue to captivate our attention centuries later, and anyone who knows just the slightest hint of what lies ahead can understand why. But in order to discuss the work of this truly amazing body, in order to understand the factions which dominated it, the fears which haunted it, the philosophies which inspired it, we should back up a bit and start at the beginning. And by that I mean we should start at its elections. In the aftermath of the fall of the monarchy on 10 August 1792, one of the very first things the Legislative Assembly did was agree to call a new national convention. Modelled off the Constitutional Convention which had existed in the United States, this body would be tasked with the drafting of a new constitution for France. Unlike its role model in the United States, however, the new legislature would be elected by universal male suffrage. At a time when some white citizens were denied the right to vote in US states due to property or taxation requirements, and at a time where many men of colour were completely barred from voting, all Frenchmen over the age of 21 were permitted to vote provided that they were not a domestic servant. More than 120 years before the United Kingdom passed laws guaranteeing universal male suffrage, the French were leading the way, not only for Europe, but the world. Yet, despite this world-leading experiment in democracy, and despite the bitter fights that had erupted over the distinction between active and passive citizens, the participation rate in the elections for the convention was shockingly small. It's estimated that less than 10% of eligible voters voted. That's right, 10%. So, what explains such a dismal number? Well, a variety of factors. Perhaps the most important is that it was harvest time. In a nation troubled by food shortages and inflation, it's understandable that ploughs took priority over poles. In addition to this, opposition to the revolution and its controversial religious reforms played a part in dampening participation, as did the war. In the northeast in particular, the Prussian advance disrupted elections which were occurring throughout the first half of September. In fact, multiple electoral assemblies even had to relocate their proceedings as a result of the military hostilities. Speaking of hostilities, another factor was voter elimination and intimidation. We've already discussed how the vote in Paris was conducted in the Jacobin Club, hardly neutral ground for those running on a different set of principles and beliefs. Furthermore, the Jacobins in Paris ensured that all constitutional monarchists and those associated with the Fillon Club were barred from participating in the Parisian Electoral Assembly, which, in conjunction with public voting, worked to suppress conservative sentiments in the capital. In some places, such activities, along with the news of the September massacres, further discouraged those inclined to vote for conservative candidates, while many decided it wasn't worth the hassle of voting at all. Taken collectively, all these factors weighed on turnout significantly, so much so that the new convention would be elected by less than 10% of all eligible voters, and thus only a few percentage points of the entire French population. So, who were the deputies who were elected to the convention? The 749 deputies of the convention were mostly from the middle class. Irrelevant of their politics, many deputies shared surprisingly similar backgrounds. Almost 50% were lawyers, and over a third had served in one of the two previous assemblies. J. 
just more than 80 had served in the National Constituent Assembly of 1789 to 1791, and roughly 200 had served in the short-lived Legislative Assembly of 1791 to 1792. The number of deputies hailing from the former privileged orders was small, but perhaps more numerous than you might expect, with about 70 or so men originating from either the first or second estates. About 55 clergymen were elected as deputies, including at least 16 constitutional bishops, all of whom had sworn the oath of allegiance to the constitution. The constitution they were about to replace. Rounding out the body were also more than 50 civil servants and almost as many physicians. At its extremes, the convention included at least one poor peasant, as well as one former prince, the Duc d'Orléans, the popular and pro-revolutionary cousin of the king. It's been a while since the Duke regularly appeared in our story, but don't worry, he's back, and he's now stylizing himself as Felipe Egalité, or Felipe Equality. In many ways, this legislature wasn't too different from that of the Legislative Assembly in terms of the men who comprised it. I mean, roughly a quarter of the body had been deputies in the Legislative Assembly itself. Sure, the political orientation of the body had changed, the constitutional monarchists were now nowhere to be seen, but in terms of the background and social origins of the deputies, not that much was different. The body remained dominated by lawyers and members of the middle class. But one important difference which is worth noting is the election of at least 17 journalists. These men, which included Jean-Paul Marat and Camille Desmoulins, had all honed their popularity through journals, pamphlets and newspapers. As such, some of these men were extremely popular. The Girondin deputy Carrar, for example, received enough votes that he could have been elected in eight different departments. The introduction of so many journalists did nothing to help suppress the increasingly factional nature of revolutionary politics, as many journalists had used denunciations and attacks to help sell their own publications. To digress for a moment, could you imagine how chaotic the US House of Representatives would be if Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and a whole bunch of other high-profile political TV anchors from both the left and the right got elected. It would be crazy. Well, that's kind of what happens here. We've heard throughout this series examples of extreme rhetoric and bitter denunciations from a variety of journalists, and some of those journalists are now deputies. As a result, verbal violence, the shaking of fists, and even good old-fashioned shouting matches will all occur in this rowdy and undisciplined convention. This legislature will be dramatic and rambunctious, to say the least. Now, having said the F word, let's move on to how the convention immediately imported one of the great problems of the previous two assemblies. Factionalism. Historians generally classify the convention as being separated into three political groupings. But I can't stress enough that you cannot think of these groupings or factions as modern-day political parties. In fact, while I use the word faction to describe the Girondins, there are some historians who think that that is too strong a word, preferring to describe those deputies as a network of friends or like-minded associates. Likewise, I myself think that the word faction is probably too strong a word to refer to the new political grouping that we'll introduce today, a grouping of unaffiliated deputies generally referred to as the plain. Now, even if a source says the word party, do not think of modern day political parties with all the associated discipline, infrastructure, public relations teams, and poorly designed fundraising emails. It's just not the case. So, what were these three political groupings? Who comprised them? And broadly speaking, what did they stand for? And how did they differ? This 
is what we're going to focus on in this episode. And we're going to also unpack some of the common perceptions of these groups, which might not be so simplistic once we get into the detail. Let's start with the two we know, the Girondins and the Montagnards. Although they did not occupy the right side of the chamber initially, for that is where the detested Fillons used to sit, the Girondins became the most conservative of the three political factions of the convention. However, the word conservative really does need to be said in a relative sense here. After all, this was the group which had sat on the left side of the Legislative Assembly. This was a group which consisted of many high-profile champions of both women's rights and the abolishment of slavery. This was a group which had dogmatically pursued policies against both the refractory clergy and the aristocratic emigres. And finally, this was a group which had utterly detested the distinction between active and passive citizens. So, while they may have been conservative for the National Convention, it wasn't that long ago that they would have been described as radicals. And in fact, some of their policy positions remained truly radical. And if these deputies had been unfortunate enough to have been captured by the Prussians or the emigres, well, you can guarantee that they would have had them hung as radicals. Now, the most notable deputies of the group we have largely met already. Obviously, this included Brousseau, and re-elected alongside him were some of the most famous Girondins of the Legislative Assembly, including Vernieu, Gessonnet, and Gaudet. Joining them was the noteworthy mathematician, the Marquis de Condorcet, and the former Parisian mayor, Jérôme Pétion, who has, by this point in time, essentially broken with his former friend, Robespierre. The most notable Girondins outside of the convention included the interior minister, Roland, his influential wife, Madame Roland, and General de Maurier, who was associated with the Girondin faction, even if he didn't share all their politics. In terms of policies and political persuasions, the Girondins are a bit of an odd bunch. Part of the reason why some historians resent the word faction being applied to such a non-homogenous group. Furthermore, not only were the Girondins far from united in their politics, but some of the common perceptions of the Girondins can be a little oversimplified or misleading. So, what I want to do is provide a broad overview of the Girondins, then do the same for the Montagnards, and as we do so, compare and contrast the position of the two. I also want to explore some of the differences which are often emphasised, but upon further digging, perhaps aren't so different once you get into the grey. Of course, my goal here is not to cover every single ideological position of these deputies, nor is it to cover the ambiguity and debate surrounding each one of those positions. Instead, what I want to do in this episode is lay the groundwork for future episodes, providing a broad, high-level overview that's sufficient enough to continue the story. As and when required, we can then get into more of the ambiguity on specific topics as they come up. In broad terms, one can say that the Girondins prized economic liberalism. In other words, they vehemently rejected government intervention when it came to commercial affairs or property rights. According to the average Girondin, property rights were natural rights. They were inalienable, they were absolute, they were sacred. Holding such a position, the Girondins were also natural champions of individualism, prizing individual liberties and the natural rights of man. Again, these rights were not relative, but absolute and sacred, meaning that the government couldn't just curtail them as it pleased. Speaking of curtailment, the Girondins were eager to limit the authority of the government, in particular, the federal government. Commonly known as the party which championed the interests of regional France, the Girondins were certainly proponents of decentralisation, a process which had already been occurring in the previous years since the fall of the Bastille. Elected to represent the departments, and often distrustful of Paris, many Girondins firmly resisted the controlling tendencies of the capital in favour of more autonomous departments 
and more powerful local government. Finally, after the September massacres, the Girondins demonstrated a commitment to the rule of law and a severe aversion to popular demonstrations and upheaval. Keenly aware that the governments before them had been swept aside by the actions of the people, and knowing that their relationship with the Parisian Saint-Culottes was strained to say the least, the Girondins were determined to keep revolutionary violence to a minimum. So, that's the Girondins in a soundbite. Yes, there's more nuance, but A, I'm getting there, and B, it's not like it's my style to pack all the happenings of the convention into a single episode, let alone a single paragraph. However, I do want to tease out two points further, but let's reintroduce the Montagnards first. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Hello, everybody. This is a quick reminder that I need your help to keep grey history on the air. Patreon supporters of the show gain access to an ad-free feed, so no mid-episode interruptions like this one, as well as access to almost half a dozen bonus episodes. Furthermore, there's hours worth of episode extras and behind-the-scenes videos as well. You're not going to want to miss the episode extra for this episode. The episode extra explores the truly revolutionary legalisation of divorce. It's 23 minutes long and it unpacks everything from its origins to its rationale to its very real impact on French society. Tens of thousands of divorces occurred in revolutionary France, and believe it or not, the vast majority were actually instigated by women. So, to gain access to this and all the other amazing bonus content, including five full-length bonus episodes, support the show today by becoming a Patreon supporter. You can cancel any time, but a small tip really does help far more than you may think. For as little as $2 per future regular episode, you can help Grey History stay on the air. So please, if you find Grey History entertaining, if you find it educational, help ensure more Grey History will be waiting for you tomorrow. If we shift our attention over to the Montagnards, then, like the Girondins, we're already familiar with many of their most prominent leaders. Robespierre, Marat and Danton would all be elected to the convention, and they would all be elected to represent Paris. Joining them were the likes of the journalist Camille Desmoulins and the famed artist Jacques-Louis David. The ranks of the Montagnards were also swelled by faces we haven't met yet. Collot de Bois and Billou Varenne were both elected as Parisian deputies, and both will be important members of the famed Committee of Public Safety. Now, you may have noticed that everyone I've just mentioned has been elected to represent Paris, and indeed many of the Montagnards' leaders either came from or were elected by the capital. This helped to reinforce perceptions that the faction represented Paris, as well as reinforce the contrast with the Girondins, who by and large came from the departments. However, not every Montagnard came from the capital. Far from it a topic that I'll elaborate on shortly. Two influential Montagnards who were elected by the departments included Couton and Saint-Just, men who would also join the Committee of Public Safety. I have no desire to get bogged down in a dozen different introductions in this episode, so we'll slowly introduce these new faces as the time requires. Many will break out onto the national scene during the King's Trial or the turbulent events of early 1793. 
Now, if we were to do a broad introduction of the Montagnard deputies, one can say that they came from a very similar social background to the Girondins. Both originated from what we would call the middle classes, and historian Eric Hazen goes as far as to state rather adamantly that the antagonism between the two groups was not due to differing social backgrounds. Initially, the distinction between the Girondins and the Montagnards, at least from a policy point of view, is not the easiest to identify. In fact, historian George Lefebvre goes as far as to state that at the commencement of the convention, the two factions did not defend opposing doctrines. Instead, Lefebvre asserts that both the Montagnards and the Girondins possessed different tendencies, which became increasingly amplified and disparate as the nation's challenges became more pronounced and as the faction's rivalries became more bitter. So, on day one, the two different factions weren't miles apart, certainly from the point of view of their social origins and debatably even in their politics. And perhaps this isn't too surprising when you consider that both were manned by members of the Jacobin Club. But where the two groups did differ greatly was their attitudes towards the capital, and in particular the Parisian Saint-Culottes. While the Girondins became increasingly hostile to the Saint-Culottes, and increasingly committed to limiting popular demonstrations and violence, the opposite had been occurring for the Montagnards. Throughout the summer of 1792, a growing alignment had taken shape between the Montagnards and the most revolutionary cohorts of the capital. We've seen this already on multiple occasions. Leading Montagnards had championed the issue of the dethronement. They had spearheaded the overthrow of the monarchy. They had staffed the insurrectionary commune and then used that commune to take the demands of the Saint-Culottes to the Girondin-dominated legislative assembly. It was the Montagnard-aligned revolutionaries which had led the admittance of passive citizens into the city's sectional assemblies. It was the Montagnard's leaders that had demanded a new revolutionary tribunal after the 10th of August, and it was high-profile Montagnards who had justified and defended the September massacres. So, by the time that the convention sat in late September, the Montagnards and the Saint-Culottes were increasingly best buds. This had important ramifications. The Montagnards had aligned themselves with the artisans, the shopkeepers, the wage earners of Paris. They had allied themselves with the common people, who were incredibly sensitive to the costs of basic goods and commodities. People who were far less interested in economic theories and inalienable rights, and far more preoccupied with putting food on the table. As a result of this alliance, the Montagnards were more exposed to the hardships of the common people more in tune with their struggles, and more interested in rectifying their troubles. This interest stemmed from two sources, one philosophical and one pragmatic. Firstly, some Montagnards genuinely saw the Saint-Culottes as representing the people, not just of Paris, but of the whole nation. The will of the Saint-Culottes was thus the will of the nation, the will of the sovereign power. As deputies, it was their duty to channel and implement that will. Secondly, while some other Montagnard deputies had reservations regarding the unorthodox policies championed by the radicals of Paris, the reality was that the Saint-Culottes were the political backbone of the Montagnards. It was their source of power, not only against their bitter rivals, the Girondins, but also against counter-revolutionaries at home and abroad. Who would fight the despotic armies of Prussia and Austria, if not the armies of the Saint-Culottes? Who would win the war and save the Republic, if not the people themselves? Could one expect that the Saint-Culottes fight and die for the revolution if they did not believe that the revolutionary government was fighting and governing on their behalf? In other words, to lose the backing of the people would be devastating, and thus, Pragmatic necessity required that Montagnard deputies respond to the demands of the Saint-Culottes. As the hardships of war, scarcity and inflation increased, 
the Montagnards would become more receptive to the radical solutions of their core constituency. Solutions such as price controls, restrictions on individual freedoms, and a whole bunch of other policies pursued in the name of the revolution's success. A more sympathetic view from historian Albert Sabol interprets all of this as the Montagnards being less encumbered with theoretical solutions than the Girondins, and thus the Montagnards being more willing to allow the wider public interest to take precedence over private interests. While that perspective may be a little too rosy, it does offer an important insight as to what distinguished the two parties, into how they differed in their tendencies, to use the language used earlier by historian George Lefebvre. While the Girondins were determined to uphold property rights, individual freedoms, and the rule of law, the Montagnards are often characterised as the more pragmatic of the two, more in tune with the will of the revolutionary cohorts of Paris, and more willing to do what was required in the interests of defending the revolution and winning the war. If that meant curtailing property rights, so be it. If that meant curtailing individual liberties, so be it. If that meant disregarding the rule of law and once again embracing the revolutionary violence, the revolutionary energy which had given birth to and propelled the revolution in the first place, so be it. Of course, this is a broad overview of the two camps, and we will unpack this in far greater detail in future episodes. But, broadly speaking, these overviews hold. The two groups weren't that different, at least initially, when it came to policy and political outlook. However, the connection to, the advocacy for, and the dependence on the sans-culottes of Paris encouraged the Montagnards to adopt a more flexible and pragmatic approach to what had previously been considered radical and unorthodox policies, particularly as the desperations of war, inflation, and starvation demanded revolutionary solutions. However, before we move on, there are two points I want to make right here, which relate to the popular perceptions of both factions. The first is in reference to the portrayal of the Girondins as the representatives of France, and the implication that the Montagnards did not represent the departments. The second relates to the Montagnards' stance on property rights, because here too, this can be oversimplified at times. If we start with the former, one common representation of the Girondins is that they were the party which best represented the departments. For example, historian Eric Hazen writes that geographical differences between the Girondins and the Montagnards were a key source of antagonism between the two groups. Hazen writes, The great figures of the mountain, if not all Parisian, were at least Paris deputies, whereas the heroes of the Gironde, except for Brousseau, came from the south. And the south was, and is still today, traditionally and culturally more jealous of its identity, more hostile to Parisian domination than the rest of the country. The Protestant pastor La Source, deputy for the Tarn, was among the Girondins who best expressed the sentiments of the group towards Paris. Now quoting La Source, I fear the despotism of Paris, and I do not want those who there command the opinions of men whom they lead astray to dominate the National Convention and all of France. Paris must be reduced to an 83rd share of influence, the same as the other departments. So, historian Eric Hazen emphasises that while the men of the convention came from similar social backgrounds, their geographical backgrounds fundamentally shaped their identities and priorities. It would be fair to say that the Girondins are generally regarded as the party of France, rather than that of Paris, and this is partially due to the deliberate branding on their part. At first glance, this common perception checks out. With the exception of Brousseau, many of their leading figures came from and had been elected by the departments. However, to say that the Girondins were the party of the provinces can be misleading. Despite the Girondins gaining a reputation 
for representing France and the Montagnards gaining a reputation for championing the interests of Paris. Many Montagnard deputies actually came from across the country. In fact, historian Timothy Tackett notes that Montagnard deputies came from all across France. As the ranks of the mountain grew, there was at least one Montagnard-aligned deputy from all but four departments. By comparison, the Girondins often came from the south, particularly from the maritime regions and port cities of the Atlantic and Mediterranean coasts. While the Montagnards had representatives from all but four departments, Girondin deputies were missing from 28. Approached another way, this so-called Party of France was missing from almost 40% of the country. Thus, it would be entirely reasonable for detractors of the Girondins to point out that these self-styled champions of the departments could only be found in 60% of them. On a not-so-serious note, this kind of reminds me of those ads for telecommunication companies which proclaims that they have the fastest internet in the entire country immediately before some fine print comes up clarifying that their exceptional service is only available in 20% of the country. Jokes aside, historian Simon Sharma notes how Montagnard deputies from the regions detested the idea that somehow the Girondins better represented their constituents. A striking number of the Girondins came from the maritime and port cities, not only Bordeaux, but Brest and Marseille, and they were, by and large, antagonistic to the claims of Paris to dictate the course of the revolution. Robespierre, in contrast, went out of his way, both in the Jacobins and in the Convention, to praise the Parisians as the indestructible source of revolutionary dynamism. But although, at the summit of its leadership, the mountain was aggressively metropolitan. On its slopes and foothills were many Jacobins who came from widely dispersed areas of France. Very often, the more remote their department, the more beleaguered they had felt inside their little Jacobin affiliate in upholding what they took to be the pure revolutionary faith. Once in Paris, they clung to the group with a special zeal and solidarity. They were likely then to take exception to the Girondins' attempt to represent themselves as the guardians of provincial liberties. So, the geographic distinction often placed between the two factions can at times be a little overblown. It's true to say that the Girondins were representatives from the departments, and it's true to say that they championed the cause of greater autonomy for the departments. But depictions or claims that they represented all the departments is not right, as is the associated implication that the Montagnards only represented the capital. Supported by deputies from a wide range of places across France, the supporters of the Montagnards could make a very real claim to represent the entirety of the nation. As is often the case, there can be a disconnect between perceptions and reality. Speaking about disconnect, the other common perception surrounding these factions that I want to touch on today relates to the economic policies of both groups, particularly in relation to the economic orthodoxy and the views on property rights of the Montagnards. As discussed earlier, the Girondins were certainly devoted to the principles of economic freedom. To the average Girondin deputy, nothing superseded the right to property and the state had no business interfering in commercial affairs. In practice, this meant a complete and utter rejection of the sorts of economic policies increasingly advocated by the Sanculottes, such as price controls, laws against hoarding, and the intervention in the production, distribution, and sale of grain. These proposals may have been popular with hungry and anxious citizens, but they were intolerable to the Girondins. Viewing property rights as a form of natural rights, these rights were inalienable, and the government not only should not, but could not, interfere with those rights. Believe it or not, the Montagnards' initial approach wasn't so different. Despite what some might suggest, the Montagnards hardly rejected the rights of private property. In fact, 
one of the first acts of the convention was to declare its determination and commitment to protect private property. This motion was not only supported by the Montagnards, it was even suggested by one of their own. It was Danton who had proposed that the convention guarantee protections for all territorial, individual and industrial properties. Danton was not alone, however. Revolutionaries which were either leading the Montagnards already or would soon do so supported not only this position, but advocated more liberal economic approaches. Approaches we generally associate with the Girondins. The Marxist historian George Lefebvre notes that Saint-Just, a deputy who would become a leading figure of the Montagnards, embraced economic orthodoxy as he proclaimed that the only way to check high prices was to curb inflation. Furthermore, while Robespierre demanded that hoarding be stopped, he initially proposed neither requisitions nor price controls. So, while much is made of the Girondins' commitment to economic liberalism, I want to make the point that, at least initially, the radical policies favoured by the Saint-Colottes were hardly embraced by the Montagnards either. However, where the Montagnards differed from the Girondins is that they eventually adopted a position which was willing to subordinate the rights of property to other rights. What did this mean in practice? Well, the right to property may well imply that you had a right to hoard grain or sell it at a certain price, but if doing so jeopardised the rights of others, say through starving them and thus depriving them of their right to liberty, well, then the right to property needed to be restricted. In other words, property rights were not limitless, not inalienable, not sacred, not equal to other rights. More in tune with the hardships of the working classes, and more reliant on the support of the Saint-Colottes, the Montagnard deputies were eventually willing to veer from the economic liberalism many subscribed to in the name of empowering the war, the revolution, and the sovereign people. However, I want to make the point that many Montagnards personally supported economic liberalism and property rights, and that on day one, there wasn't such a difference between their position and that of the Girondins. While we associate the Girondins with being the champions of economic liberalism, originally the Montagnards were also advocates of such ideas. It's just that they shifted to address the challenges they faced. Hardly rejecting property rights, the Montagnards were willing to take a more flexible approach, and that approach would be vital to their eventual success. So, broadly speaking, that's the Girondins and the Montagnards. We know most of their leaders, we're already familiar with some of their policies, and we now know that some of the common depictions of both camps are more nuanced than they might first appear. That just leaves the new political grouping of the convention, the Plain. Between the Montagnards, which sat on the left, and the Girondins, which sat on the right, was a group of unaffiliated deputies. In fact, this is where the majority of deputies sat. Now, getting accurate figures on the number of deputies associated with each faction is impossible. There are so many different ways that historians have tried to calculate these numbers, and it doesn't help that the deputies would shift their affiliations over time, that key records have been destroyed, and that various regime changes have some covering up what was once seen as good deeds, but subsequently viewed as mortal sins. Upon the start of the convention, the number of deputies that were actively involved in the factional nucleus of either the Montagnards or the Girondins was actually quite small. Even in January 1793, one unaligned deputy wrote that the confrontation in the hall was the cause of two groups consisting of about 50 members each. Historian Michael Sydenham agrees with this assessment, describing the number of Girondins in the group's inner circle to number about 60. Although even here, Sydenham notes that almost half of that figure have debatable relationships with Brousseau, one of the central figures of the Girondin faction. So initially, the two factions of the convention were small. The divisive debates and crises of 1793 would expand the number of supporters each faction could rely upon, 
and in the case of the Montagnards, they would grow significantly, both in terms of the number of its vocal advocates as well as its less vocal supporters. But the important thing here is that the Girondins and the Montagnards were originally dwarfed by the large number of unaligned deputies, totaling at least a few hundred individuals. And even as the deputies began to take sides, this group of unaffiliated representatives remained sizable. This group is known by a variety of names, but I'll refer to it as the Plain. The Plain is also sometimes known as the Marsh, both names inspired due to their location sitting on the lower benches of the convention. As a reminder, the Montagnards had got their name because they sat on the top of the steep benches of the convention. Montagne is French for mountain, or at least it's my dodgy French for mountain, and the word Montagnard translates to something akin to mountain dweller. So keep in mind, if I ever say the word mountain, I am referring to the Montagnards. Shifting back to the plain, located in between the Girondins and the Montagnards, the politics of these deputies can generally be associated with their location, the middle ground. Members generally occupied the centre of the convention's political debates, supporting property rights and individual liberties, while also aware of the demands and harsh realities of both the war and a hungry and agitated Paris. Many members of the plain were open to economic and political controls, but critically, they saw these as temporary measures to win the war and establish peace. Such policies would not have been acceptable if the revolution's very existence was not in jeopardy. Historian George Lefebvre writes, Resolved to defend the revolution and the territorial integrity of the nation, its members were opportunists in selecting their means. Very bourgeois, they were at heart afraid of the people. Arbitrary and bloody violence repulsed them. Economic freedom, they too considered dogma. But as long as the Republic was in danger, they thought it unwise to break with the men of August 10, especially since those men demanded measures which could be of some use until victory was won. For these reasons, a few, Barrera, Canu, Lender, Cambon, rallied to the mountain. Like the Girondins and the Montagnards, we actually know some of the plain's most recognisable members. Returning to the scene of national politics was Abbe Sierz, the author of the famous pamphlet What is the Third Estate? and a significant mover and shaker in the events transforming the Estates General into the National Assembly in 1789. Back from the past was also Abbe Gregoire, a priest who promoted the civil constitution of the clergy and a committed supporter of the revolutionary project. Yet, while the plain does have some familiar faces, the most notable faces, for our purposes, are new. Barrera, Canu, and Lender were certainly some of them, all three famous for their work as members of the Committee of Public Safety. Again, we'll introduce them with good time. Now, the one thing to note about the plain is that when the Montagnards and the Girondins disagreed, it was the individual deputies of the Marsh who determined the outcome. The Toads, as some of their detractors like to call them, were a group of unaffiliated and unaligned deputies who often stayed away from political societies and associations. Importantly, this group did not act as one. Far from it. The Plain would not vote as a singular party. Remember, there were no modern-day political organisations. And in fact, this was a group full of unaligned and unaffiliated deputies. So instead, the Plain was a group of individuals who each needed to be won over to an argument on a case-by-case basis. Critically, with a few hundred of the convention's deputies sitting with the plane, if one wanted to get something done, you were going to need the support of at least some members of the centre. Thus, individuals in both factions would make great efforts to gain the support of unaligned deputies. The decisions of these deputies were critical in determining the trajectory of the revolution. So, that's it. 
Those are the three political groupings which will dominate our story going forward. The Girondins, the Montagnards and the Plains, their leaders, their philosophies, their internal tensions and their interfactional disputes will all be critically important to the character and development of the revolution. These factions comprised the famous convention of revolutionary France, and they were truly revolutionary. As we'll see in the next episode, almost immediately the new deputies proceeded to remake France, most notably with the First French Republic and the subsequent trial of the king. But despite all that was new, there were some things that could not be relegated to the past. One of those things was factionalism. Almost immediately, the convention would be saddled with the bitter, venomous and spiteful disunity of previous years. When combined with a fixation on the ill intentions of one's political opponents and a belief that conspiracy lurked in every shadow, the result was not just a convention, but a coliseum. A new political arena had been created in Paris, an arena where one's mere political demise was actually one of the better outcomes available to the combatants. Seeking to capitalise on the revulsion caused by the September massacres, as well as the heroic victories of the French armies, it would be the Girondins who attempted to draw first blood. They would quickly strike at their Montagnard rivals, and the struggle for France would commence almost as soon as the deputies took their seats. The battles which ensued would be bloody. Thank you for listening to episode 44, The National Convention. In the next episode, we'll be exploring how the convention almost immediately descended into factional squabbles with accusations of dictatorship and tyranny. This will allow us to set up the rather hostile and dysfunctional scene which existed as the deputies turned their attention to the trial of the king. Now, do not miss the episode extra for this episode. The wide-ranging discussion on the groundbreaking reforms regarding divorce is roughly 23 minutes long, and the French really did redefine how society conceptualised marriage. As always, grey history is only possible thanks to the support of the community. So thank you so much to all the Patreon supporters for supporting the show and helping to keep grey history on the air. Another warm welcome to the new patrons of the show and a special mention to the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Eric and Christy. Also, a tremendous thank you to those people who have been sharing the show on social media, telling their friends and family, leaving written reviews or sending in words of encouragement, or really just doing anything to help grey history. It's really appreciated. As always, thank you for listening. Stay safe. Please share the show with anyone who you think is looking for a new history podcast, and have a great day.